Right, well, folks, I just got a, a text actually from Brennan. So a number of our guys um, are fighting fires. Let me just, I thought I would share it with you and then we might pray for those guys as well. Um, so there we go. Um, just a, a picture of them in front of the fire truck. That's, that's, and then lots of flames. You can come look at it later if you want. And Brennan says, a fun time was had by all. It's very Brennan. Anyway, so Dennis, Ian, Quentin, and, and, and Brennan had just got back, and then Jim and Dan um, are out there now, so they replaced them at Bunnanoon. Anyway, there you go. Why don't I pray for those guys, shall I? And, and we'll get stuck in. Father, we, um, we thank you for... Uh, uh, there's quite a few people out at, at, from church here who are involved in the RFS and, and fighting fires and coordinating things. We do ask that you would um, keep them safe. Uh, we do ask, Lord, as we'll pray soon, but we pray again, Lord, for, that for you to um, douse the, uh, the flames with rain and, um, and stop the fire from causing any more damage. Uh, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you that we can trust you. Um, and we do pray for safety of our friends out in the fire grounds now. Amen. All right. Well... Uh, so today, yeah, we start a new series. It's a new series on, on uh, really tough questions for God. We're doing four of them, uh, four difficult questions that, that I think most of us wrestle over at some point or another. Now, here's my hunch, right? Here's my little suspicion that I have after last night, after the weekend, um, after the weeks we've had, really, after the dis- devastating destruction of these fires, um, taking life and property. My hunch is that many of us are asking, or at least many of us know someone who is asking, if God is so loving, then why did my house burn down? If God is in control, why doesn't he end this pain? Why does a loving God allow such suffering? Now, I want to admit to you now, that's not the question that I plan to do this morning. <laughs> uh, I, um, I don't, I've never actually done this before. I would normally stick to what I've planned. Um, but I felt compelled that we need to think on this question once more, especially in the light of um, what's happening around us, I guess. Uh, why? Because it's a helpful reminder, the answer that's given, I think the biblical answer that's given, a helpful reminder of the real hope and comfort we have in Jesus. And perhaps you'll get asked this question over the next little while. Someone might point at you and say, why does your God allow this to happen? I thought your God was, was, uh, was loving and kind. And I'm hoping today um, the answer that we get, uh, well, as I say in a minute, it's not a perfect answer. I hope today the answer we get will be helpful. Um, either, either way, too, it's a question that actually... that. Either it, either it haunts us now or it will at some time in our future. Now, why is it a tough question, though? Well, it's tough because there really isn't a great answer. There isn't a walk away, lay down, Mazaire, I've got this great, fantastic. It's, it's not an easy question to answer. Uh, and for many people, this question torpedoes the Christian faith. I gotcha. It's a I gotcha moment at Christians. You know, you think your God's loving... I got you now. So for many people, it's like that. Uh, it's also tough because many of us have experienced pain, and some of us might be even today. Uh, which, and pain causes us to doubt. We we doubt God. 
and we doubt that he's loving. And so we question, and, and it might even cause us to be angry as well. So, thinking and talking about suffering and God, well, it's a tough question. Uh, I, I'm going to pray again, if that's okay. Um, I'm going to pray specifically about what we're going to do now. So let's do that. Father, we, um, we ask that you, would, uh, that you would speak through me, help me to be clear. And uh, we pray, Lord, that although the answer um, isn't, I suppose, it's challenging, the answer. But, Lord, we, um, we pray that uh, we would trust in you, uh, not in the world around us, and that we would um, hear and listen carefully for the next little while. Amen. Well, these are the, the statistics of this year's fire season. I don't know if you've seen them. Uh, they're really quite extraordinary. Many people have used the word unprecedented. And the stats back up the use of this word. They really do. So as at January 3, it's changed now. <laughs> Two days later, isn't it? What is it today? It's the 5th, yeah. So just thinking of, the, of New South Wales and the ACT, uh, 16 people had died. Uh, there was one missing, and as I wrote, 28 people were missing in the Victorian fires. Now, I believe overnight many of those have shown up, which is good news. Uh, more than 140 bushfires were burning in, the New, South, in New South Wales and ACT. So this is January 3rd. It's changed now. Um, 3.6 million hectares were burned. So that's bigger than the size of, size of Belgium, if, you, if, if that helps as a, as a comparison. Again, <laughs> this has changed too. It's just, just dreadful. 1,365 homes were confirmed destroyed. Uh, a number of homes last night were taken out in Bundanoon. So, uh, yeah, my guess following yesterday's conditions, those figures have changed again. But they're staggering, aren't they? The south coast town of Cabago was hit um, a few days ago. It's one of my favourite little spots. I love it. Uh, it's beautifully historic. And it's surrounded by stunning beaches. Um, there's a great place near there called Bingy Point, which I love surfing at. Surf with dolphins there a few times. It's just a beautiful part of the world. I love it. Um, here's, here's the main street now. I don't know if you've seen this picture. Devastating, isn't it? Uh, very old, old heritage-listed buildings, that main street. And in fact, we were, we, Archie, Wes and I, we're at a cafe uh, just about... Actually, you think it's this one, about there. Off the, only recently. Um, many are left with nothing. Businesses and, and homes completely burnt to the ground. Uh, one lady kicked through the charred ruins of her house and, uh, and her business, describing what once was um, uh, to this news crew nearby. Nothing had escaped the flames. Nothing. Now, I, I couldn't help be reminded of, of Job in the Old Testament and the story of Job. Although, thankfully, this, this woman had not lost any loved ones, Job had lost everything and his children, and uh, later his health. His house, like this woman's in Cabago, had been destroyed. Like Job, everything he had ever worked for had now turned to ash. It's not an unheard-of question, then, to ask in such circumstances, where is God in all this? Or why doesn't God end the pain? How can a loving God allow such suffering... What comfort can God give these people? What hope? If God is so powerful and so loving, why doesn't he do something about it? 
Perhaps you've, you've thought that, you've asked that, and I, I no doubt I think people would be asking it today. So today, I, I'd, like to spend some, I'd like us to spend some time doing three things as we try to, to get an answer to this question. The first thing is, and, and rather quickly, we'll argue that suffering doesn't disprove God. It actually just simply opens up another question. And second, we'll weigh up the alternatives, suffering without God in the picture. And then third, what we'll try to do is to grasp the, the, the Christian biblical perspective on suffering. A fair bit to do in the time we have. Um, I hope you're able to follow along with me. So let's think about suffering and God, first of all. See, many would argue that suffering and pain simply prove God does not exist. It's what I said earlier. It, it torpedoes the Christian faith. But does it? Uh, let's have a look at this, this argument for a moment. So uh, uh, here's the equation. Suffering disproves, disproves the existence of God. Assumption, first assumption, an all-powerful God would be able to end suffering. The next assumption, an all-powerful God would desire to end suffering, wouldn't he? Fact is, though, look around us, suffering exists. Therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving God does not exist. But the difficulty is we don't know that God desires to end suffering. He may choose to make it continue for loving reasons. So let's look at equation number two then. Suffering does not disprove the existence of God. That's the equation. First assumption, an all-powerful God exists. Assumption number two, an all-loving God exists Fact is, look around us, suffering exists. So God must have loving reasons, this is the conclusion, for permitting suffering. So that leaves us then with some questions, doesn't it? Why would God allow it then? If that's all true, if we think that's right, that's a good equation, what, and, and what has God done or what is he doing about it? That They're important questions. Okay, now before we go into that, let's look at some alternatives. Uh, before we look at the Bible's answer to these difficult questions, let's, let's, it's worth taking a moment to summarise these alternatives. If there, is a, if there is such a spiritual reality that controls the universe and our lives, so what alternatives from the Bible are there with regard to the question of suffering? So if you're a Hindu, all right, karma or balance... Uh, reincarnation shape the answer to these questions. Suffering in this life is a direct result of living a bad or selfish previous life. That's reincarnation in a nutshell, I guess. We want to ask, though, is there comfort and compassion in this response to suffering? Personally, I don't think so. Uh, what about Buddhism? If following the teachings of the Buddha, pain then is an illusion and only by enlightenment, uh, enlightenment can we escape the pain and break the ties of attachment that bind us to this life. But the, point, but the, the pain is a reality though. <laughs> that, that's the problem. There's no escaping it. Ask the woman who lost her house in Cabago. Do you feel that pain? Oh, I bet she does. You'd have to ask the Buddhists too whether it's truly possible to live this way, detachment like that. And of course, logically, detachment from this life also means detachment from all things that are good, meaning in life, love, kindness. You've got to detach yourself from that too. Can you live that way? What about our Muslim friends? 
Well, in great faithfulness, they simply resign themselves to the finger of the Almighty. So, as the Quran puts it, uh, it's Allah's will, inshallah, they would say, Allah is the unmoved mover. But are we simply resigned to fate? Uh, Is God personal? Can we feel our pain and sympathise, or dare I say, empathise with it? Or can God feel our pain and sympathise with it? Uh, The Muslim says, no, God doesn't empathise. God's separate and distant. He won't lower himself to the level of humans. Islam clearly teaches too that suffering, uh, such as the present bushfires, is a result of our sin. We'll see the Christian perspective on this in a moment too, in terms of our sin and judgment. And what if your belief is no God at all? What if you're an atheist? Well, then suffering is just a natural, unhappy byproduct of the universe. So it's the randomness of the universe. Uh, that's what, uh, that's the, a quote by Richard Dawkins, a famous um, outspoken atheist. Uh, Dawkins actually, when confronted with the pain of this world, uh, the Holocaust, six million Jews, uh, the systematic rape of young girls held captive by ISIS, uh, global sex trafficking, the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia, which killed 230,000 people, um, and not to mention the recent destructive bushfires of 2019-2020. When Dawkins is confronted with, su- with such suffering, Dawkins looks at it and declares that our universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But what of, what of hope? What of compassion? What of comfort? Does not Dawkins' belief discourage those things? Compassion and hope and comfort. Lots more to say there. How about we look at the biblical response now? Uh, what's the Christian response to this question? The first thing we note is that is we want to note the justice of God. So in the Bible, God speaks of humanity's sin or defiance against God, that we rule the universe in our lives, we reject God's rule. This sin has consequences, the Bible says. God won't let us rebel forever. Um, we'll get to God's judgment in a moment. But when we go against God's rule, God's good order, Humans, as a result, inflict suffering on other humans. That's what happens, isn't it? We hurt each other. It's not hard to find examples of humans um, uh, inflicting suffering on other humans. So civil wars and famine, um, the pain of divorce, domestic violence, a tyrannical ruler wasting valuable resources needed to, free the star- um, needed to fr- feed the starving, even bushfires lit by deranged firebugs, um, such sinfulness matters to God. We want to see. God will not be taken lightly. God has set a day when he will judge the world, when Jesus returns, when he will bring about justice. God actually cares about what happens in our lives. He's not detached. Uh, he's not distanced. Now, we're not saying that suffering is, in fact, judgment. It, it may be, but the Bible doesn't say so. So when Christians in the spotlight claim these fires are a result of human sinfulness, well, we ought to question such statements. There's no biblical justification for that conclusion today. When suffering is judgment, so we see it in the Bible, it's very, very clear. God makes it clear. He says it so. Uh, So we shouldn't speculate. 
Jesus says in John 9 in response to the disciples' question of whose sin made the blind man blind, his parents or the man himself, Jesus says, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see that? And Job's another good example too. Job was a righteous, good man who suffered greatly. So we shouldn't make that conclusion that um, sin causes judgment or, or suffering is caused by sin in our own lives. We can see here how the Bible's teaching is so different from the Buddhist teaching of karma and reincarnation, can't we? And of course, the teaching of the Quran in Islam. The Bible teaches there's no correlation with sin and suffering in this life. Uh, okay, so what can we say about God's judgment and our rebellion against Him? Well, let's say a couple of things, and then we'll have a little break for a minute, right? God's judgment tells us. It matters to God when you are mistreated. When you are cheated, when you're rejected, not loved, when powerful people abuse their status for their own gain at the expense of others, the Bible says God cares. When injustice robs people of their dignity, when children are abused, when violence destroys lives, it matters to God. And he says one day God will bring justice to those involved. There's great comfort in that. But there's a delay in judgment. God continues to allow human freedom and as a result people continue to sin and suffering goes on. However, uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us that God is merciful, he's patient, he wants everyone to come to him and trust in repentance. So the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some of you understand slowness, instead he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I think most of us can understand this, that our sinfulness sometimes causes others to suffer, and we can understand that, we get that. Not saying, well, and that God, that God has the right to judge such sinfulness too. I think that's, most people would say, well, it's fair enough if we believe all that. And that the, this justice of God, well, in the end, this justice of God is comforting. But what about suffering that's not man-made, so to speak? Is there an answer? Uh, to get to an understanding of that, we need to go back right to the beginning. Okay, let's take a little break for a minute, a little, little breather, right? Um, only a little one, because we've got a bit to go through yet. What, I, what, what I'd love you to have is a Bible in front of you. So I might, I, I might just see if the... Um, if you've got a Bible, get it out. Uh, if you've got a phone, um, if you want to right now... Uh, go and run and get a Bible up there. Do that because I'm going to go and I'm going to get a drink of my water, and that'll mean that other people can get up too and run around. So if you need a Bible, go and grab a Bible. That'd be great. If you wanted to stand up and take a stretch, you can do that as well. I don't mind. Um, we're going to have a look at Genesis chapter three. I'll bet open my Bible too. Now you can have your phones open, but you've got to promise me you're not looking at the Fires Near Me app, all right? <laughs> I might surprise you and say, could you read this out for us? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. All right. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm at Genesis 3. If you've got to Revelation, you've gone too far. Dad joke, sorry. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Oh, thanks, Matt. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about man-made suffering, and I think most of us get that. 
the fact that man-made suffering causes, well, man-made sin, I suppose, causes suffering. When we rebel against God's ways, we hurt each other, that causes suffering, right? What about when uh, it's not man-made? We're going to go back to Genesis 3 and we'll see, we'll see if that question actually makes sense too. So the early chapters of Genesis uh, are, are a highly compacted picture of reality. Genesis tells us there is one God who is the creator of all things. The writer paints an image of God speaking the universe into existence, systematically creating order and beauty out of nothing. So if you look at Genesis 1 verse 31, people are God's special creation with a unique ability to carry God's image and relate to him. When God has completed his work, we're told that he saw all that he, he, that he saw all that he had made, and it was what was it? Very good, thank you, excellent. Uh, however, in Genesis three, we read that the goodness that goodness being spoiled by humanity's rejection of God. So Adam and Eve and, and the fruit and so forth, their disobedience. Instead of trusting God's good order. They rejected his rule and they went their own way. They, they put the king's crown on their own head. So we're comparing Genesis 1 and 2 and then with Genesis 3, uh, commonly referred as the fall, well, that's, that presents a helpful but sad, picture, a sad before and after picture. So let's just do that for a few minutes. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describes a perfect relationship between people and God. They were not afraid of him. But have a look at what happened following their disobedience. So look at chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. See, their relation, the relationship between humans was perfect. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 25 says the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame which is another way of saying they had, they had nothing to fear from each other. Uh, they could be completely accepted and loved. So the relationship with God, well, they started hiding from God and then they started hiding from each other in terms of covering themselves up. They felt, well, they felt shame. So if we look at chapter 3, verse 7, uh, so back a verse, this is, them, this is the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they, fo- they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. And then go down to 3 verse 12. Uh, this is the man blaming the woman. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That's what he does. That's what men do, don't they? Not my fault. It was his fault. Um, and prior to this, the relationship between creation and the people was one of harmony and peace. But again, let, let's so we've, the, the relationship between God and creation, upset. The relation, the relationship between the humans, now upset. And now the relationship between, well, uh, the, the creation and the people, that's upset too. If we go to verse 15, chapter 3, and God says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and hers, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth uh, to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you eat it, eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. Uh, I'll stop there. It's actually, you see, creation was upset too because of the sin of the harmony and peace was upset. One more comparison. So we've looked at a few already. One more. So before the fall, life was a gift that would not end. So in 3 verse 19, things change. 3 verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat of your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you return. It's very poetic. It's meant to be. It's not a scientific textbook. It's not a his- historical, um, I think it's historical, but uh, it's not written like a historical narrative. It's written, written very in a poetic way. But clearly what's changed is death has come into the picture. So the Bible teaches that the agony of suffering and the imperfect world we now live in, which includes non-man-made suffering, is the result of mankind's rebellion against God. All evil and suffering stem from this defiance of God and his ways. So the reality is, the Bible says, that, that we are all part of this problem. Each of us suffers at the hands of a broken world. Because of the fall, the certainty of death hangs over us all. But we also have a sinful nature. So we would, if you or I were Adam and Eve, we would have done the same thing. Our sinful nature, has a, and that has, it's a natural tendency to turn away from God and say, put the crown on our own head and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, not you, God. So the big question is, okay, well, looking at all that, uh, you can close Genesis 3 if you want. Um, Looking at all that, what hope and comfort does the Bible offer you and I? What hope and comfort does the Bible offer that lady in Cabago? Or those people in Bunanoon who lost their house last night? Uh, I want to say plenty. First, God wants us to fix our eyes on the past, the past which affects our present and future. God wants us to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God suffered for us. John Dixon has written a really good little book called If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain. It's very small. You could read it on a rainy afternoon or two rainy afternoons if we ever get one. Um, so <laughs> uh, here's what he said. Where am I going? Oh, I'm, I'm a bit behind. Okay. This is what he said from that. The story of Jesus is the story of God refusing to write off the world as a lost cause, but being determined to work within the world to save it. In the life of Jesus, God chooses the way of becoming a human, experiencing all of life with its joys and sorrows, and then submitting to a brutal and unjust death. It is this aspect of the cross that gives the Christian message such force in the face of suffering and living in an unjust world. The Bible tells us to look at the cross when it comes to suffering. Friends, the cross is not an explanation of evil and suffering, but it is the story of an event where God deals with it. The Bible tells us that God is not... Sorry, the Bible tells us that God is a God of love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness, and this is most clearly seen at the cross. In willingly allowing the forces of evil to come down on him with all their might... Jesus has taken on the darkness and defeated the one who has power over death. And this is what Dixon writes again uh, a couple pages later. It is this fact that God entered our world of flesh and blood and pain and tears that tells us that human suffering mattered to God and that he understands. He stands with us in our pain. That's what the cross does. The cross actually says to us, God gets it. He understands. 
Second, God promises a future where pain and suffering are no more for those who follow Jesus, who believe in him. God promises to renew all things, a new creation, uh, heaven, the old order of things passed away. The cross is comfort and hope. Where God's taking us is comfort and hope. Um, the old order of things passed away. So Catherine, this to us, to us before. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Sea is chaos in the Bible all the time. Think of examples of sea, it's chaos. It's death and destruction. In heaven, there's no more chaos. There's, there's no more sea. Uh, skip down to verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And this hope, this comfort is a sure and certain hope. A confident expectation for those who follow Jesus. It can never crack, spoil or fade. 1 Peter says as well. Uh, 1 Peter 1. It's the ga- and the guarantee is the resurrection of Jesus. So God's promise is simple. One day we'll be with him and that'll be perfect. That's the comfort and hope of knowing Jesus in times of suffering. In the meantime, while we wait for this, we actually have the promise of God that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And he sits with us in suffering to the bitter end and beyond, as we see. One more thing to say. What about us, the church? The body of Christ? Well, when we think about the Christian response, that's what we've been looking at, the Christian's perspective of suffering, there's a Christian responsibility too. That's the church's responsibility. As Jesus' body on earth, the church Christian people must throw themselves into spiritual partnership with those who suffer. And this, uh, we might call it fellowship if you like, Uh, it's not devoid of practical help. We love in action those who suffer. That's the Christian's responsibility. So those living, for example, in the slums of Calcutta, they know this from Mother Teresa, a great example, and the missionaries of charity, they were, the, the group that they, they served with. Mother Teresa's goal was profoundly theological. Uh, she describes her work. I'll put it up here, I think. Um, Mother Teresa's goal is seeing and adoring Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. That's a great goal, isn't it? Do you, do you have, a, have a just consider that for a moment? I won't take it down. Um, seeing and adoring Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. See, it's not—it's it, not all theoretical either. Either it meant caring for people no one else would care for. It meant touching people that no one else would touch. Christians are not called to compassionate detachment. We're not called to stand back and. We're just going to, we're, we're, you know, as people mock Christians, they say, oh, thoughts and prayers. Uh, don't let us, don't let people mock you with that. Um, it's good, we must pray, we ought to pray, but we love in action as well. Christians truly following Jesus are deeply attached, covered in tears, their own and those of others, just like the Lord Jesus. <coughs> How do we respond to these bushfires? Well, there's a number of ways we can do it. Um, uh, And and maybe that might be something to talk about over morning tea. How do we love in action um, with what we see around us? 
there's been a lot of generosity from the general public for the Red Cross donations. I think um, Celeste Barber and her Instagram fame, uh, she's raised $16 million. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? It's great. It's great. Uh, she's not a Christian person, but it's great. Um, we have our Archbishop um, uh, here through Anglican Aid Archbishop's Fund to help with um, uh, the churches that are on the front line of that. So Bundanoon Church um, needs that help. Uh, I was speaking to Jeremy Tonks, who's the minister down there, and um, I, I don't know the latest, actually, but it's still under threat. His house is under threat, the rectory there, and the beautiful old church. Have you seen the Bundanoon Church? Um, that it, It's a beautiful building, so I, I hope it's looked after. Um, uh, I think one of the big ways that we can respond in our community is make sure um, our uh, older friends in the community are, are helped and looked after. So if you're someone who's very able-bodied and strong and you've got a neighbour who's not so, uh, look after them. Make sure they know what to do, make sure they're not stressed out um, and, uh, and maybe clean her up around their garden because they mightn't be able to do that. that. That's the two practical ways that we can help in that way. Um, we had our church open yesterday afternoon. Um, I didn't think anyone would come. One person came. There you go. And we had a lovely afternoon together um, and we, we just chatted for a little while. Uh, that, was, that was good. We'll, we'll do that quite often, I think, over this little season coming. Um, so if you, if you can drop in as well if you want to. Um, we're going to try to keep doing that. Uh, think, of some other, think, of some, think of some other ways and share them with each other about how you can practically help those who are suffering. Um, all right. Friends, if you're hurting today, this is what we ought to remember, that know that Jesus understands and feels your pain and know that he's died for you so that one day your pain will end. Know that. If you're suffering today, look to the cross. If you're in pain today, look to the cross. Know the comfort and hope and forgiveness that comes with it and trust in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus today, well, let's ask God to help us to love in action. The poor, the lonely, the sick, those who suffer. How about we pray? Father, we, uh, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the hope and comfort we receive with the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we trust in you. Lord, again we pray for those in our community that are suffering and are under stress, Perhaps they're anxious. We pray that, Lord, that you would comfort them. We ask, Lord, that you would use us powerfully as your church, your ambassadors here, to love in action, um, particularly this community around us, but even more, more widely as well. Uh, thank you for your love and, and uh, your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.